Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody here today. I had no idea how little most of you wanted to sit by your children. No idea. Because we're like, hey, the back is open. You don't have to sit next to them and just applause breaks out. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> but I totally understand. If you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to be starting a new series today through the Gospel of Mark. Um, probably not verse by verse. I may change my mind about that. Um, but we're going to be in it for several months, uh, reading his account of the life of Jesus. Before we get into that, though, I want to make one announcement. Next Sunday night, we're starting our marriage uh, enrichment event class thing. It's going to be two Sunday nights from 6 to 8. Next Sunday night is the first one of those. We'll be meeting back here in the back. Um, uh, if you'd like to sign up for that, everybody's welcome. If you'd like to sign up for that, there's a sheet out in the information dugout. You can sign up, so stop by there and write your name down. If you signed up on Facebook already or have emailed me, you don't have to do that. Uh, I've got them already. So if you haven't signed up and you'd like to get in on it, though, sign up for that out there. I think it's going to be a really good time. Now, Mark, um, the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, seek to answer two basic questions about Jesus. Their whole purpose can be summed up in, in two questions. Who is Jesus and what has he done? That's the Gospels. Who is Jesus and what has he done? We're going to look at Mark verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 today. And Mark answers these two questions right away. Mark, in fact, gives away the ending of the book in the first three verses. And the answers that he gives to these questions, who is Jesus and what he's done, are profound. The answers that he gives to those two questions are just mind-blowing if we think about it. So that's all we're going to do today. We're going to let Mark answer the questions for us. Who is Jesus and what he's done? Let's read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And then immediately after that, Mark starts to talk about John the Baptist, because these verses, chapter, uh, verses 2 and 3, about the messenger that's coming before the Lord, those are verses about John. So, so Mark is saying John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah. God prophesied through Isaiah long ago that he would send somebody that would be a, a forerunner to the Messiah, a messenger that would go before and make his way, and that's John. That's John the Baptist. But these, these verses tell us actually far more about Jesus than they tell us about John. These verses are from Isaiah chapter 40, the cited ones there. Behold, I send my messenger, prepare the way of the Lord. It says this in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a, a highway for our God. Now to understand what that tells us about Jesus, we're going to have to dig in a little bit. So at first, this may sound kind of foreign and you're like, I'm having a hard time following you. Stick with me and I, I think you'll get it. Stick with me and I think we'll get there. If you were to turn to Isaiah 40, if you have your Bible, you can. In fact, if you were to turn to Isaiah 40 and find this verse there where Isaiah originally wrote it, I'm sending a messenger to, pre to prepare the way of the Lord. What you would find when you come to the word Lord, you've probably noticed this if you've read the Old Testament, you would find that the word Lord is in all capital letters. You ever notice that in the Old Testament? You're reading through and there's, there's a certain font or typeface in there. And often when you come to the word Lord, it's all capital letters, and the font is a little bit smaller than the rest of the font. It's done that way intentionally. The translators and the ones who print the Bible, different translations, are trying to communicate something to us. They're trying to tell us that the word we translated here is different. 
This word is a unique word. So this is where we have to dig in a little bit. But if you hang on, I think you'll understand it. This is from the preface to the ESV Bible. So if you have an ESV like me, you could actually flip to the very front to the preface and it'll tell you this. This is what it says about that capital word Lord in the Old Testament. First, concerning terms that refer to God in the Old Testament. God, the maker of heaven and earth, introduced himself to the people of Israel with a special personal name. The consonants for which are Y-H-W-H. So if you go to Exodus chapter 3, Moses is talking to a burning bush. Do you remember that story? Moses was out in the wilderness. He was feeding the sheep, and he sees a bush burning, so he goes to check it out. He should be the only one out there. He's wondering why a bush is on fire. He goes to check out the bush, and a voice starts to speak to him from the bush. It's the voice of the Lord. And the Lord tells him, Moses, go to Egypt and free my people. Go to Egypt and tell them I'm freeing them, actually. I'm coming for them, and the Pharaoh has to let them go. And so Moses has a logical question to the fire that's talking to him. The question he asks is, If I go tell them that, I'm not committing to anything. If I go and tell them that, who will I tell them sent me? They're going to ask, who is this God that has sent you? And God said, tell them that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. And then later on in that same passage, he says, my my name is, and he gives this. He gives us these four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H. People think Yahweh might be a good translation of that, but we don't actually know for sure. I'll tell you why in a moment. Anyway, so from the preface, it goes on to say, scholars call this the tetragrammaton. It's just a Greek word that means four four letters. The exact pronunciation of the name, Y-H-W-H, is uncertain because the Jewish people, and listen to this, the Jewish people considered the personal name of God to be so holy that it should never be spoken aloud. They thought the name of God that God gave Moses, there in the burning bush, was so holy they should never speak it aloud. In fact, they didn't only just not speak it. Whenever they would read it, whenever they would write it, they would put vowels in there from a different word altogether. They would take the vowels from the word Lord, not the proper name like Jeremy or Tom or whatever, but from the name Lord. They put those vowels in there so that as a person was reading along, they would come to that and they would remember, oh, don't say this word out loud. Don't say this name out loud. The name of God is too holy. We can't even speak his name. So every time the proper name was there, they would just say Lord instead. So as they started to translate the Bible into other languages, the other translations would follow suit, whether it was Greek or Syriac or Aramaic or even English now. Whenever you see God's proper name in the Old Testament, rather than having that Y-H-W-H name, you have Lord in all caps. That's why it's like that. Somebody else has said, according to one count, that name is used a whopping 6,828 times in the Hebrew Bible. So it's all over the place. As the Hebrews would read their scriptures, they would see this divine name of God over and over and over and over. And every time they would come to it, they would never say it out loud. They would never pronounce it out loud. Instead, they would come to his proper name, Pete or Phil or, you know, like a proper name, and they would say, the Lord, the Lord. In fact, later Jews, um, they don't even do that. They would just say the name. When they're talking about the name of God, they, w- they had a specific, Hashem is the word. They would refer to the name over and over and over, 6,828 times in the Hebrew Bible. The divine name is derived from the Hebrew word meaning to be. 
So when God is talking to Moses and he says to him, I am who I am, I've always existed. His name is taken out of that idea. His, his name is derived from the word to be. As such, when the people of Israel used this term, they were essentially affirming that their God was he who exists over and against idols who were merely the work of human hands with no real existence beyond their physical representation. John Piper says this about the name. Whenever the name Lord is printed in small caps in the English translation, it means the name Yahweh. That's how he thinks it's pronounced, Yahweh. For ancient Jews and conservative modern ones, Yahweh was the name of name so sacred that they would not speak it, nor would they write it in full. They left out the vowels. Yahweh was the Holy One of Israel. So think about this. Every time, God gave them his name. And every time, 6,800 something times in scripture, that it was there, they wouldn't say it out loud. They, they, they believed it to be this holy. See, God had given them a commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they thought perhaps the best way to fulfill this commandment is to never even say the name of God. I don't, <laughs> so are you getting something for the reverence they had? Something of the fear of the Lord that they had? If I never say this name that God has given us, then I couldn't possibly take it in vain, they thought. They misunderstood the commandment just a little bit there. But this is what they would do. And didn't they have a good reason for it, really? Have you ever read the Old Testament? God could be pretty terrifying. Moses, again, not the burning bush moment, but later on, Moses is on another mountain with God after he had gone to Egypt and he had told them, the Lord has sent me to, to declare your freedom. The Lord has sent me to declare that he's coming to liberate you from Pharaoh's bondage. After all that, after God had showed himself through signs and wonders and miracles and plagues and all these kind of things, they're walking around in the wilderness. Moses is back up on the mountain with God. God is talking to Moses. That's pretty unique. A personal one-on-one conversation with Moses. So they're pretty tight as far as God and people go, right? Moses has got a pretty unique position. In fact, God had told Moses, you can come up here, but don't let anybody else come up here. If anybody else comes up here, they die. But you come up here. So Moses has this unique position with God. Moses is up on the mountain talking with God, and he asks something of him. He says, show me your glory. God, I want to see your glory. And you know what God tells him? God says to him, if you see my face, you'll die. I'm too holy. You can't handle it. (laughs) If you look at me, you will die. So that's the God of the Bible. That's the God of creation. Can you kind of start to get a sense of why they might feel like we're not even going to say his name because who knows what will happen? God hides him and Moses in the cleft of a rock and passes by and, and all that. Later on, another guy, Elijah, Elisha, Elijah, who was one of God's prophets, uh, Elijah was in a cave and he starts to hear the voice of the Lord. And again, almost the same thing unfolds. He hides Elijah behind a rock to communicate something to him. You can't see me, Elijah. Too holy, too sacred. Even over in the New Testament, Peter, one of the Lord's disciples, when he was first getting to know Jesus, um, Jesus got into his boat and taught a little bit, and then they, they went out to fish, and um, Peter didn't think they'd catch any fish, but Jesus said, actually, watch this. Put your net down over here, and they draw the net in, and there's all these fish in there. And Peter says this to Jesus. He says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And isn't that a strange response? Wouldn't you say instead, hey, we should do this again tomorrow? <laughs> you are really good for business. 
This is fantastic. I'm going to go sell all these. That's not what he says. Peter, the Lord's closest disciple, says to Jesus, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He understood something. He understood that God is holy. And I don't think I want to be in his presence if he's that holy. (laughs) What's he going to do to me? Who am I? I can't stand with God. This, uh, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, this is probably what I'm about to say, the most used sermon illustration ever, just for the record. If you're like, you've already used this? Yeah, I have, and so has every other preacher in the world. This is Susan's dilemma in Narnia. You know the story of the children find their way through the wardrobe into the snowy land of Narnia. Um, this is what it says, listen. Aslan, that's the God character in Narnia. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Narnia has talking animals, if you don't know. You always look at me like you've never heard of fiction before when I cite this. You're like, you're talking about talking animals, lightsabers. What's wrong with you? You know what I'm talking about. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see Susan's reluctance there? He's a lion. I don't know if I want to meet a lion or not. I don't know if I want to be in the presence of a lion because a lion can take me down. (laughs) A lion can overpower me. A lion is is stronger than I am. Modern people have the same problem. We might look at the, the ancient Hebrews and think, that's pretty superstitious, you guys. Pretty superstitious. Changing the vowels of the word, doing your all caps Lord instead of the divine name of God there. Pretty superstitious, but we have the same people problem. Modern people, I think in our hearts, we don't know if we want to meet God or not. We don't know if we want there to be a God or not. We got this dilemma. If there's no God, then most of life doesn't make any sense at all. Nobody can really live that way. The Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Nobody can really live like there is no God. If you think you can live like there's no God, come up to me after the service and let me hit you in the face and you have no ground to stand on telling me I shouldn't do that. Where are you trying to get this absolute sense of right and wrong? Who is it that's establishing that? People can't live that way. The most hardened atheist that would say there's no God and all that there is is the physical stuff. There's no spiritual stuff. There's no afterlife. There's no soul. There's, there's molecules and cells and bodies and reproduction and eating and life. Even that person goes home and kisses their kids to bed at night. Even that person. Why would you do that? Why would you do that if there were no God in the universe, if there were not something besides the physical in the world, if all there was was just cells and molecules and protons and neutrons and all that kind of stuff why would you feel like you loved your kids why would you think your kid mattered any more than the neighbor's dog right see people can't live that way so we can't live like there is no god but modern people know intuitively if there is a god it means that the universe has a boss the universe has a boss the universe has a ruler If there is a God, it means there's a standard also. If there is a God, there's a lawgiver. There is one who has set things in motion and ordered things and created the place. Atheism is modern man's way to try to evade the lion. Modern man's way to try to evade the boss, the ruler of the universe. Listen to this quote from Frederick Nietzsche, who was, of course, a famous atheistic philosopher that declared God is dead. Listen to this quote. It's a little kind of convoluted, but... 
some other guys comment on it, and I'll read them after it. It has gradually become clear to me what every great philosophy has hitherto been, a confession on the part of its author and a kind of involuntary and unconscious memoir. Moreover, that the moral or immoral intentions in every philosophy have every time constituted the real germ of life out of which the entire plant has grown. So what he's saying is with any philosophy somebody takes into the world, the moral or immoral intentions behind it are actually the thing that serve to shape the philosophy. They're the thing that serves to set the parameters and define the philosophy. He goes on to say, to explain how a philosopher's most remote metaphysical assertions have actually been arrived at, it's always well and wise to ask oneself first, what morality does this, does he, aim at? I accordingly do not believe a drive to knowledge to be the father of philosophy, but that another drive has, here as elsewhere, only employed knowledge and false knowledge as a tool. So Nietzsche is saying all philosophies are, are, are out of something. Something's behind them, driving them. It isn't usually the philosophy and then the morality that comes out of that. Instead, it's the morality or immorality and then the philosophy that comes out of it. A guy named Steve Timmis and Tim Chester commenting on this say, as Nietzsche recognizes with characteristic honesty, all philosophy, however rational, is ultimately a justification for the way we want to live our lives. All philosophy, however rational, is ultimately a justification for the way we want to live our lives. So here's what, here's what atheism and secularism seek to do. They, we, we want there not to be a God, because if there's not a God, then there's not a boss, there's not a ruler, there's not an authority I have to submit to. So what I do is I craft this idea that there is no God. Why would we do that? It's because just like the ancient Hebrews... We don't know if we should be in his presence or not. Just like Peter in the boat, we're not sure we need to be in that space with him because we know who we are. We know what we're guilty of. We know what we've done, and we know what he apparently can do, right? Imagine this. Imagine we're walking through the woods, you and I, and we stumble across an empty house. Whether or not that house had an owner would make all the difference in the world, wouldn't it? We stumble across the empty house, we go in, if there's not an owner, I can kick holes in the wall. I can bust out the windows. I'm a pretty bad person for doing that, but I'm not obligated to anybody. Nobody's going to show up, show up and hold me liable for that, are they? Because nobody owns the house. Again, it's kind of a sorry thing to do, um, but, but nobody can hold me accountable for that. However, if the house has an owner and I do those things, I'm accountable, aren't I? I am morally obligated because it is their house that I messed up. It is their property that has to be fixed now. It's their money that will have to pay the expenses. Do you, you see why it matters whether the house has an owner or not? If the universe didn't have a God, we could do whatever we want, and it might make you a good person or a bad person or whatever, but you wouldn't ultimately be accountable. If the universe has a God, as it does, then we're morally accountable to him. It's his house that we're in. If we were walking through the woods, by the way, and I said, I don't think anybody owns this house. This is nobody's house. This is our house. We're free to go into this house and do whatever we please. Any rational person would look at me and say, you're crazy. <laughs> Obviously, the house has an owner. Somebody has to own the house. Houses don't just pop up in the middle of the woods, do they? Somebody has to own the house. You know that if it's there, it actually has an owner. So what does all this mean? Let's put all of this stuff together. I, I think it'll make sense. Mark is saying, 
Jesus has come, and the forerunner has come before him. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I send my messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. What Mark is saying is that prophecy from the Old Testament is talking about Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the all-caps Lord of the Old Testament. The God who was so holy that his people wouldn't even speak his name has come, and his name is Jesus. Isn't that a stark contrast? They were so afraid, we can't even say his name. Can't even write his name out. You've got to put different vowels in there. To, in fact, maybe you've seen this before when people write, some modern Jews, even when they write the word God, they won't write G-O-D. They'll write G-D because of reverence for God. They had this idea that God was so distant, so uh, fearful, and now he's shown up. Mark is saying, that's Jesus. The God that the Old Testament spoke about is Jesus. Jesus is the I am of the burning bush. Jesus is the one who existed before everything. Jesus is the owner of the house. Jesus is Narnia's lion. uh, Not safe, but good. So what does that God do when he shows up? The God whose name they wouldn't even speak. The God who they, they were so afraid of taking it in vain, they wouldn't even write it. What does he do? Mark tells us what he does. He shows up and he heals the sick and cleanses lepers. This God that they thought was so distant takes his hands and he puts them on people that nobody else would touch in society. People who are outcasts in society. He calms the storms for his fearful, doubting followers. His followers see Jesus do all these things and then they're scared to death and Jesus gets up and rebukes the storm. Peace be still, he says. <laughs> Isn't it incredible? He feeds ungrateful crowds. Crowds gather before him and he knows they're there to see a miracle. They're not there to listen to him. Most of them, some of them were, but not most of them. He feeds them anyway. He gives food to them anyway without question of do you deserve this or not. He calls tax collectors and sinners to follow him. He sits with prostitutes when nobody else in society would sit with the prostitutes. He gives his life for us. He gives life to the dead. He brings daughters back to life and gives them back to their grieving dads. He picks up little kids to play with them, and then he rebukes the people who tried to stop them from doing that. The great I am of the universe, the burning bush that spoke to Moses, the one that Bible translators wouldn't even write his name. They just write all caps, L-O-R-D. You know who I'm talking about, right? We're not gonna say it out loud. You know who I'm talking about. He shows up and he picks up kids. He loves children. He loves people. He loves the unclean. He loves the outcast. He restores sight to the blind. He forgives sinners. Such a contrast between who he actually is and who they perceived him to be. Do you think we've gotten over that? Who he actually is and who many people perceive him to be. It's remarkable. But none of those things I mentioned are the ultimate thing he came to do. They were all on the way to something else. All of the gospel accounts are moving towards something. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all end the same way, right? You know the story. You time you get over to John, you're like, I think I've heard this story before. All of them are marching towards a cross. All of them are marching towards what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to go to a cross and utter a cry. It is finished. That's how the gospel's end. It is finished. And then he goes to the grave and he rises from the grave and it started brand new, right? It's finished. Look at verse one again. Mark tells us this in the very first verse. He gives it away. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
The word gospel was a Greek word. Mark was a Jewish guy, but he was writing to mostly Greeks in Rome. And so the people who originally read his letter would have read this and known exactly what he was talking about. The word gospel in Greek was, was an everyday word. It was a word, as Tim Keller says, that distinguished the Christian message from that of other religions. A gospel was news of a great historical event, such as a victory in war or the ascension of a new king, that changed the listener's condition and required a response from the listener. That was how they used the word gospel. Gospel was an announcement of something that had been done. It was an announcement of a historical event that had happened that had implications for all the people that would hear about that historical event. So in Rome, if the Caesar had a new um, firstborn son, a herald would run around the whole kingdom, uh, city to city, and would announce the the Caesar had a son. A new king is born. The next king is here. And that was called a gospel. The announcement was the gospel. It was an announcement of a good news. Or if there was a victory in battle, a herald would run back um, to the town and declare, we've won, we've won, we've won. The battle is over. The, the, the Romans have won. They've conquered their enemies. That announcement they were declaring, that was called a gospel. This is the way they heard that word. Everybody understood, oh, he's here to declare a gospel. He's here to make an announcement of good news. And this is the word that Mark chooses to open his account of the gospel with, the beginning, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, so what's, what's Mark telling us? He's telling us something in the very first sentence, isn't he? He's telling us right away, Jesus has accomplished something. Jesus has done something. Jesus has finished what he set out to do. The story that I'm about to unpack for you, the story that I'm about to tell you is a finished story in a lot of ways. Jesus came for a purpose, and he accomplished that purpose. And Christianity is built on that truth. Christianity is built on the truth that Jesus Christ has accomplished something. Jesus did not come and build half the house and leave the other half for us to build. Jesus did not come and mow half the yard and then call us and say, Listen, I got the tough stuff done. I got all the weeds. I did all the edging. I did the weed eating, but I did the push mowing. You got to do the part. No, 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 no. The gospel is Jesus came and he did everything he set out to accomplish. Jesus came and he did everything he set out to do. So the, so the invitation of Christianity is not come and prove yourself. Come to church and try to be a really good person. Come to church and just try to demonstrate how, how much you're changing and how much you're getting your act together and how much you're really fighting hard against those bad things you used to do. And all. That's not the invitation of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is not come and try to live better at all. The invitation of the gospel is come and live. Come and live. Jesus has done something that means life for us. Jesus has accomplished something at the cross that is done. And now for every single person who will put their faith in him, they can walk away saying it's finished. It's finished. The debt is paid. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My sin no longer lingers over me. The judgment of God no longer lingers over me. I'm no longer under the wrath of God because Jesus has done something. This is the gospel. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord of the universe. He's the voice from the burning bush. He's Narnia's lion. He's the owner of the house. He's the great I am. He's the one who speaks with authority. And what has he done? He's accomplished what he set out to accomplish. He's made it to the cross. He said, it's finished. The battle has been won. The king has ascended. And now that gospel calls for a response from us. 
that gospel requires a response from us. See, when the herald would go back to the city and say, the, the, the battle is over, the Romans have won again, they've defeated their enemies again, it made a pretty big difference whether you were on the side of the Romans or whether you were on the side of the other team, right? So your response would either be, yes, I'm in for that. I'm on board with that. I'm following this leader. I'm following this victor. Or your response would be, no, I'm not, I'm not in there. That's not for me. Down with the Romans, right? This, this was the response. The gospel of Jesus calls for the same response. You hear it, and either you say, yes, Lord, I trust you. I believe that was for me. The cross was for me. Your accomplishment, your victory was for me, and it's finished now. I don't have to live the rest of my life hoping it's going to be okay in the end because of what you've done. Or you hold your hand up and you say, no, I'll still take care of this myself. I'm, I'm still going to prove myself. I'm still going to do all this kind of stuff on my own. What's your response going to be? So the message of the whole Gospel of Mark, not to give the ending away, but he did it, not me, is this. God has come to save. God, the God, has come to be near to us and to save us. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. He's come to save. Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior. And there is an announcement of good news for every single person who will trust in Him. It, it's interesting. We Two words. Um, one of those is a Hebrew word, right? Lord, that's a Hebrew thing. And then gospel, the word he used there, that's a, that's a Greek thing. Most of the first people who listened to Mark would have been one of those two people. And they would have thought the world was divided among those two lines. There are the Jews, and then there are all the rest of us, everybody else. And Mark takes a word from both of them. He says to the Hebrew background religious person, this Lord has come near. And he says to this Greek background person, he's come and he's brought the victory. He's won. It's a message for everyone. Jew and Gentile, Greek and Hebrew, uh, American, Middle Easterner, African. It's a message for everyone. Do you know it? Have you trusted him? Have you decided to follow Jesus? My hope as we go through the Gospel of Mark is not that you would leave knowing more about the book of Mark, but that you would leave knowing Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. You are gracious and kind, Lord. You have sent your son for us. The one who is so holy on our own, we shouldn't even speak of him, has come to be near to us. He's come to give his life for us. He's come to make us new. He's come to accomplish a victory at the cross for all of us. God, help us to have faith in you. Help us to trust in you, Lord. Help us to be people that can say with our lives, it is finished because of what Jesus has done. And help us to be people that can take that message to the world and tell them our God has come. He's not safe, but he's good. God, would you have your way here today? Would you call men and women to yourself? Would you open eyes to see who you are, Jesus, and what you've done for us? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.